Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. Dana Thomas is a dyed-in-the-wool, true blue journalist. She lives it, breathes it, and consumes it every day. She is the Woodward and Bernstein, or the Ronan Farrow, if you will, of the fashion industry. Her deep-dive investigative books into the inner workings of the fashion world have earned her the respect of her peers, and, I am sure, when she comes knocking, a few shivers of fear down the spines of at least a couple of CEOs during her career. In 2007, she published the New York Times bestseller, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, which explored the dark side of the multi-billion dollar business and exposed the hidden secrets that luxury brands didn't want to have see the light of day. Then, in 2015, she published Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. In that book, Thomas explored how two of the most creative and influential designers of the past 30 years cracked under the pressure of the 24-7 incessant demands of a business built on always coming up with the next big thing, must-have accessory, and the designer as superstar approach to creating a global fashion powerhouse. And now, Thomas is back with another timely and on-point book called Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of clothes. This time she examines the damage wrought by the global clothing industry and the role that sustainability, accountability, fair trade and transparency must take if the world of fashion wants to stay viable in the coming decades as the needs of the consumers and the climate both change. After a year in Paris working as a model, Thomas moved back to the United States to start her award-winning career by cutting her teeth in journalism, writing for the style section of the Washington Post. She then returned to Paris and was, for 15 years, a cultural and fashion correspondent for Newsweek in the City of Light. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, T, The New York Times Style Magazine, and Architectural Digest just to name a few. And in 2016, the French Minister of Culture named her a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters. I met up with Thomas in her home in the 7th arrondissement in Paris. There, surrounded by her collection of rare and out-of-print fashion books, with her dog Daisy at her feet and her daughter Lucy studying in the next room, we talked about her new book, her lifelong love of fashion, and her ability to spot a seminal story before anyone else. Dear listeners, before we begin this interview, I just wanted to let you know that at some point the audio is a bit scratchy and the voices go a little lower than we'd like them. But the interview with Dana was so interesting, I tried to keep most of that in, so you're just going to have to listen even harder to all of her great insights. Enjoy the podcast. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate it. It's wonderful to finally sit down and talk with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I wanted to go back to the beginning of your career because you've had such an illustrious career within the world of fashion as a, uh, as a fashion um, reporter and journalist. But I wanted to know how you first got interested in this field in particular. Well, it's funny. It wasn't my idea. It was my dad's idea. When I was a teenager living on the Philadelphia Main Line, my dad pushed me into becoming a model and in Philadelphia, working for the department stores hmm. as, a, as a junior wear model. Because my parents hadn't saved up for my college education, and this was a good way to make 
really good money really easily. And I was, you know, this fresh-faced American-looking kid, so I did all the junior wear ads for the newspapers on Sundays, Strawbridge and Clothier, John Wanamaker. They had their studios in the building and went in. You know, I'd get out of school at 3 o'clock, jump on the train up the street because it's Philadelphia Main Line, take the Main Line train into Penn Station, walk on the other side of City Hall to John Wanamaker or down Market Street to Strawbridge and Clothier, spent an hour or two there. I was paid $60 an hour, which in 1980 was a lot of money. And, you know, spent an hour or two there. And then sometimes I'd meet Dad if he was downtown and take the train back out. Sometimes I'd take it out by myself. And Mom would pick me up at the station. And that's how I got into it. And then when I was 16, Dad took me up to New York to see the fashion agencies, the modeling agencies. And I met Eileen Ford and I met Casa, John Casablanca at Elite. And they, and, and John brought me on as a new face. So I did that for a summer, which is where I first met Don Ashby. Oh, really? Photographer. He oh was just gosh. starting out. And then I went back to Philadelphia. I finished high school. I did a year in college. And then Elite called me back and said, come see all of our European agents who are in town scouting. They want to see you. So I went back up and to New York, and I met with the agency from Milan and the one from Paris. And, uh, and the following week, I got called back up and sat down with my dad there in the office. And they said, do you want to go to Paris? Paris really wants you to come to Paris. And before I could say anything, my dad said, yes, of course you will. Wow. And I went to Paris. So what, what do you think made your dad think, I mean, other than, okay, should, we need to pay for her college or whatever, and this is a quick way of making money. I mean, I mean, it's quite well, it was a... a dream, the idea of being flying to Paris yeah. to become a fashion model. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I wouldn't have said no either. But I didn't even have a chance to think about it. And what was it like that first trip to Paris? And how old were you? You were 18. 18, okay. It was... Um, it was foreign, and I had studied French since sixth grade, so I could speak French, but when pe- French people started speaking to me, that was a different game mm-hmm. altogether from, you know, learning in the classroom and speaking with Madame Pavy. And it was the first time I'd been overseas besides, you know, a trip to Jamaica when I was six, six years old, I think. It was, um, it was really different. It was really different in a way that it isn't different today. A whole different culture in a way. A whole yeah. different cu- culture. And, you know, we were really cut off when you went overseas. You went overseas. Yes. Yeah. You know, we wrote letters and we wrote it on the onion, like, paper. paper yeah, that you would fold it up and it would, ma- and the envelope was actually the letter itself exactly. and you would mail it out. Yep. And if I had wanted to call my parents, I would go to the bank and get a roll of five franc coins and go on a payphone. And mm-hmm. I, it was like a slot machine to call them. So I only did that like once a month. So, you know, you were really far away. And were you doing runway or were you doing for No, I was too short doing? for runway. That was back when it was Dalma and Jerry Hall. Oh, yeah. And Iman. No. These women were all six, six, two. And I'm five, eight and a half or so. Mm-hmm. So I, that was before Kate Moss changed that. Yeah. Runway. I did a little bit of runway, but not much. Showroom appointments like Annie's Bay. Because mm-hmm. again, I was the fresh face. face yeah. Cute. And I worked a lot in Germany for Freunden and Brigitte and a catalog called Otto Gerson. <laughs> and um, and I worked in Milan. I never worked in the UK. I worked in Milan and Germany and France a lot. Mm-hmm. And I did that for three years. And I took all that money and I went back to college and I knew I wanted to be a journalist. How did you know you wanted to be a journalist? I'd always wanted to write. I've, I've been writing since I was a kid. Okay. And I worked on the student newspaper when I was in college that freshman year. So and my dad had been in news, so news was always kind of an important thing in our household. My dad had worked for NBC when he was young. Okay. And um, so you go. So you go back to college. So I went back to college, and I'm studying journalism at American University and paying my way and working, you know, jobs. I worked on the Hill for a bit. 
I worked on a campaign for a bit, a presidential campaign, and I wanted to be a political reporter, and I wanted to work, I wanted to cover the White House. Wow. I mean, everyone does, right? Yeah. But that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work at the Washington Post, I wanted to be on the National Desk, and I wanted to be White House correspondent. And I got to the paper, and I worked as a copy in the Washington Post. I landed this job while still in college, sorting mail. You know in the movie The Post? Mm-hmm. When you see the guy pushing around that metal cart with all the packages in it, <laughs> delivering packages to people's desks, yeah. that was my job. <laughs> Such a glamorous life. Such a glamorous life. I think my first check was for 35 bucks. <laughs> but I was so happy. And this was the Washington Post under Ben Bradley, you know. I was giving, putting Ben's new Washington Post on his desk every day. Wow. And, and working with legends, David Broder and, you know, Bill Raspberry and Richard Cohen and, you know, just these legends that I watched growing up in Philadelphia and in Washington and on the political shows, you know, mm-hmm. like legends. And um, so I was thrilled. And then I landed a gig as the National Desk News Aide, right, I'm on my way to the White House. Yeah. I was working with Lou Cannon and I was working with Malcolm Gladwell and I was working with Mike Isikoff and I was working with, you know, Anne Devoy and, and Broder and these, you know, legends in political reporting and watching what they did and how they did it. And it was amazing. And then Nina Hyde, the fashion editor, needed a new assistant. And she heard that there was this national news desk aide who had lived in Paris and Milan, spoke French and some Italian. Oh, yeah. Knew how to say Givenchy. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, was probably the only person in the newsroom who knew such things. Uh-huh. And so she tapped me for the summer. And the very first day I worked for her... That evening, there was an event at the National Building Museum for celebrating the opening of Nordstrom at Tyson's Corner. And the guest star of the evening was Calvin Klein. Mm. And he had just gotten out of rehab, and he was married to Kelly Klein. Mm -hmm. And this was all this news about Calvin, and Nina wanted the story. And they wouldn't let her anywhere near him, his people. And she was best friends with the chairman of the evening, a wonderful woman named Peggy Cooper Kafritz, who was the head, was on the board, or maybe the head, the founder of the Duke Ellington School for the Arts. The benefit was for the Duke Ellington mm-hmm. School that evening. And she was seated to the right of Calvin. And Nina pulled Peggy aside and said, they're not let me anywhere near Calvin, and i got to get the story. And so she convinced Peggy to switch seats with her without saying anything. <gasps> so everyone sat down, and then the seat next to Calvin is sitting empty waiting for Peggy. Nina sits down. <laughs> and I thought this was just the most genius thing I'd ever seen. And she got the story. We went directly from the party back to the newspaper and wrote the story for the late city or the replayed edition. And I was hooked. I was like, okay. I always thought that the modeling thing was its own thing mm-hmm. and was the means to the end of being a reporter at the Washington Post. But in fact, the two could work together mm-hmm. and that I had all this knowledge and it was valuable. It wasn't just something I put in a box on a shelf. So I worked with Nina that summer and I came back and worked for her again later. And then after she died of breast cancer, I did all the coverage at the paper in fashion until they hired Kathy Horn. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did not apply for that job when Kathy got it was because I was only 25 mm-hmm. or 26. And I just thought I was too young for the job. And if I thought I was too young for the job, I was sure everybody else would think I was too young for the job. But how old was Kathy? She was older than I was. Okay. She still is older than I was. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> I don't know, but she wasn't 25 or 26. She yeah. had already been a fashion editor in mm. Detroit at a newspaper for several years. 
So, you know, she might have had five years on me. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But that was a big five years. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I understand what you're saying. And, um, and that was a big jump. And I didn't think I was ready to do it yet. I didn't think I was ready to be a critic. Mm-hmm. I knew how to be a fashion reporter. And then how turned, did you know how to be a fashion reporter? So, because you said, so this is what I'm saying. So she, so your, your real schooling all uh, uh, was on the ground, like was, on the ground. was like in the trenches, in the trenches yeah. and for everything in the Washington post. I was very lucky to be working at the Washington post style section and it, in its glory years at the paper under Ben in its glory years. And so it was like being, you know, people, I know there are journalists who go to Columbia School of Journalism to get their master's. Well, that was yeah, I say the same thing. I like, you know, with Susie, working with Susie for 16 years, like, why do I need to go pay for an education? And I'm getting it every day for Susie. Like, amazing. yeah, amazing. I mean, I remember very clearly one day, blisteringly hot day, and Nina said, I, I'm getting the sense that shorts, city shorts are a thing in Washington this summer. Take a notebook and go down at lunchtime and talk to every single woman you see wearing city shorts and ask her why, what they're made of, where, they, where she bought them. And then come back and write a story for tomorrow's paper. Boom. Yeah. And this is what, like, for, like, this is so at 11, so by, and you yeah. turn that around and get it in by what time? The deadline was six. six. Yeah. 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 And I did it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And she said, you just walk up to people and you say, you walk up to women and say, I see you wearing shorts. I write for this dial section of the Washington Post fashion page. We're doing a piece today. Doesn't that open so many doors when you say that? Like, I'm working for the style page. Yeah, right? Especially when it was the Washington Post in Washington, D.C. For sure. And And so so she sent me out to do that. And I watched her do things like that, Calvin Manuel, which was just so amazing. And I used to cover events with her where I would watch how she worked a room. Uh And it was crazy. And I still do that. My daughter's kind of in awe when we walk into a room. And I'll be like, you know, big party. Yeah. We did one at the Chateau Marmont. And I said, okay, I did one loop around. I said, right, I see what we need to do. And I took her by the hand, and we just walked straight up to uh, Sandra Bullock. And she's like, oh, hi, hi, because I'd interviewed her over the years at the uh-huh. Film Festival. I'm like, oh, she's my daughter. Lucy, who's, you know, the core of your fan base with the Miscongeniality movies. Yeah. And we had a lovely chat with her, and then we walked five steps over there, and there was George Clooney, and we just walked straight up to George, who I'd met many years, uh-huh. many times over the years, and interviewed for Newsweek. And I said, this is my daughter, Lucy. And he sucked her in and said, okay, so you're visiting colleges. Let's talk about UCLA and USC and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I said, and now we can go. We've, we've worked the party. Yeah, yeah. We've had a drink. Yeah. We're done. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 From, but I mean, but, I learned but, that from Nina. Yeah. But so, but that's one thing when you've already interviewed, you know, Sandra Bullock and Clooney, right. you can walk up to them. So, but how do you do that that first time? Is it that first time because you're, you've been assigned by and that that's what helps get you in or, or have you been ballsy? How are you in the sense of like, I've never met Mr. Valentino or whatever. And you just walk up to them as well. I mean, how, what do you need to be able to do that job? You I guess. need to be sent in the street with a notebook at lunchtime and told, Go talk to strangers about what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had I developed a reputation at the Washington Post of being fearless, mm. and it was Nina who taught me to be fearless because she was just like, "You just got to go do it." All right, so then you're there. You're you you stepped in when she unfortunately passed away, Ask and then answer. yeah, and then uh, and so Kathy comes in, and then what's the next step for you? Um, and then I was working with the classical music critic for a while. And I helped Lois uh, Romano launch the Reliable Source gossip page, mm-hmm. which is still there. And then I met my husband, and he said, uh, we met at a wedding in New York, and he said, I want to marry you and have you come up with me in Paris. <gasps> and I said, well, yeah, our, sure. Our stories are so similar. This is crazy. That's okay. Very good. 
So I moved here, and I immediately went into the office and asked Mary Hadar, the head of the style section, if I moved to Paris, can I keep writing for the style section from Paris? She said, absolutely, and you're going to marry Hervé because we all love him. <laughs> said, okay. And so I came here and started working for the Washington Post from here as a stringer, and then moved over to Newsweek. And that was in 92, and in 95, I moved to the Paris Bureau of Newsweek, which was in the same area group. Yeah. It was the same company. It's still the Washington Post company. And was covering fashion because I did not have a fashion reporter even in New York at the time, as well as culture, which was great and so much fun. And it sounds it was as great as it sounds. Yeah, it was the glory days of, of and, all of that and covering culture across you know all throughout France, but really across Europe. But it was also the time when the industry was changing dramatically and rapidly. So all these business stories started coming up. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really trained to be a business writer, but we had a really great editor who had come from the Wall Street Journal at Newsweek, and he said, I will teach you how to become a business writer. It's just like what you're doing, except you just have to ask two or three more questions and drop a few numbers in, but not a lot, because most of our readers are not MBAs either. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're writing for people who aren't business readers, and that's why you're going to There'll be business pieces, but there'll be general assignment business pieces, so you can really reach as many. We had four million readers around the world. Mm-hmm. Because this is when the this is when the LVMH was starting to rise, and the and, and the founding and of the Prada, Prada. And the founding of the Gucci Group, and yeah. wore the handbags, mm-hmm. and, and it was you know sexy, but it was also news, yeah, because this was affecting Big business. stock markets, yeah. and 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 the numbers were growing and growing, and the business was just you know zooming, and so I. I suddenly started finding my stories not just in the back of the book, but in the business section. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. And that's when I sort of then started thinking about my first book, Deluxe, mm-hmm. and taking a lot of that reporting and then carrying on with it. And Because as a, as a consumer of some of these brands, I found that the prices were going up. And in some cases, the quality, quality was going down. Definitely not following. Like yeah. from season to season, like the sweater, the cardigan I bought at one brand in the spring, and then I bought their all version of it. In you know six months later, it wasn't knit one piece; it was sewed together. The buttons were falling off. You know, they, mm-hmm. like there was clear. Yeah. Or the first time I walked, took it to the laundry, it came back a different color. You know, there was things changing. And meanwhile, I'm at the magazine reporting that their profits are going. Uh, roof. Yeah. even when their revenues weren't. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, you know, I was terrible in algebra. But even I can figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> There's something something going on here. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started thinking about Deluxe and, and eventually figured out what to do with it. So how long did you work on Deluxe before it was published? That w- well, I worked on the book proposal for three years, which is unheard of. Wow. But okay. I didn't work on it nonstop. I would work on it in spurts and then leave it to... But wait, wait just to be clear, book proposal is not an outline for a book. You actually write the whole book on spec, right? Because it's your first no, book? No, 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 no. It was a proposal. It was okay. about 20,000 words, which is a long proposal. Yeah. Quite simply, I borrowed from Katie Wiseman, who's a friend of mine mm. from Women's Wear, a book called How to Write a Book Proposal. <laughs> Oh, can you hand that to me? I, I need one of those. I need that one for sure. <laughs> she said, here, look at this. And I looked at it and I just followed that. Mm-hmm. And But I worked on it on and off for about two and a half to three years. Mm-hmm. What period are we talking about here? Is this 2000 and... 99, 2000. Okay, 2001. So this is... 
Yeah. Somewhere in there. So we were really starting to, you know, cook in the gas and, and as far you know, as the luxury. And the target was still moving and forming. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then I remember extraordinarily clearly, I, the summer of 2001, I read the book Fast Food Nation. And I said, oh, this is the book I want to write about fashion. This is, this, now I see how to do it. Mm-hmm. I was stuck. And I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to sort it out sort of. Not just structurally, but also voice and like the, the take, yeah. the take I was going to take on the business. And when I read that, which turns out had been partially inspired by the book American Way of Death, huh. um, which is a great book by Nancy Mitford, it was sort of a, a, a type of book. The Omnivore's Dilemma is the same type of book. Mm-hmm. It's a type of book. And when I figured out the type of book I was supposed to be writing, I knew, then I said, right, I can do this. And I called my agent. Tina Bennett, and it was Friday, September 6th, 2001. Oh, wow. And I said, I figured out how to do the book proposal, and you will get it in six to eight months. I've got it down. Mm-hmm. I know what to do now. Mm-hmm. And, and I told her that my inspiration was Fast Food Nation, and she said, oh, well, that makes sense. He's one of my writers, too. And I'm like, ah. oh, good. Actually, and that's when I called her, because when I finished the book and I was reading Acknowledgements, he said my agent, Tina Bennett. And I was like, oh, she's my agent. She'll totally understand what I'm trying to say now. And when I said that, she's like, yes, go to work. But then I spent, still, it took a while. Mm-hmm. It took a while to get it together. But I remember because it was the Friday before September 11th. Oh, of course, yeah. So I worked on it for a while, and I had a baby. So it took even longer. Yeah, that'll do that. And I landed the contract on my 40th birthday. Wow. Which is sick which is February 3rd, 2004. So you see, it took a while. Yeah, to okay, get that that's book. reassuring. Okay. It took a while to get that book sorted out, but then it took three years to, re- to write it. But that was that book was not appreciated within the industry. I mean, in the sense yes, that... Was. No, in the sense that there were people who were not happy with some of the things you had to say in it, right? A handful. Mm-hmm. It's funny, there's this idea that I lost my access. I didn't at all. I actually got invited to speak at... By five or six companies, major, 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 major yeah. companies, like the top, mm-hmm. of the top ten, six of them invited me, including one major department store, to come speak at their in-house conferences. I couldn't do it because at Newsweek, it was considered a conflict of interest. Because oh, you, you were still at Newsweek where you were writing all this, okay. And I also was, I got invited to breakfast by CEOs, I got invited to lunch by CEOs and designers, mm-hmm. I got phone calls, I got handwritten notes. Mm-hmm. Even most recently, Jill Sander called me about two or three years ago when she read it, she's like, this is the best book ever. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jill. Oh, I'm not, I'm not arguing the point that that was a but freaking fabulous book. But I got a lot of CEOs book. who wrote to me and said, mm-hmm. we had not realized we'd gone so far off course, thank you. Or, even more than that, they ordered it. And made everybody read it. And made everybody read it or had me come in and sign it to give to their customers and clients. Like bulk orders from my publisher. No, it's, I only, only about, I can tell you, three people were bent. And why were they bent? Well, one was Eve Carcel. God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. And we loved Eve. Yes, we all loved Eve. We all loved Eve. And Eve called me and he called and screamed at me. And he said, you compared Louis Vuitton to McDonald's. But... Louis Vuitton, and he said, but McDonald's makes shit that makes people fat. And he said that in his French accent. Oh. McDonald's makes people shit that makes people fat. That's not what he said. I said that it's like McDonald's in that. Yes. The logo is recognizable around the world. Mm-hmm. You're often in the same locations. 
often across the, the street from each other. <laughs> so true. Look at the Champs Elysees. Look at yep. the Champs Elysees. Look at Milan. Look at Hong Kong. Yep. Look at St. Mark's Place. You know, like Piazza San Marco. I mean, it was like more than once I came across that. And I said, "You brag about Billy and Soul." So you know, yeah. that's it. Yeah. But he's so <gasps> he just went bananas. And then the other two people who were not happy with it. They have asked me never to speak about the company again because they'll sue me, so I don't. Okay. Point taken. But if you read the book, you know You'll know exactly who those are. (laughs) Okay, so so what is your talk to me a little bit about your writing process then? I mean, and it has it evolved since because you've now done we I want to definitely talk about the other two books because um I've read the other two. I have not read Deluxe yet, but I have to. Oh, I'll get you one today. Oh yeah. Signed autographed copy. So tell me a little bit so clearly you take your time. I just remember when I would read the when I get to the back and I would read your pages of like credits of everybody. I mean you have got the no, the footnotes are redonkulously long. I mean, you you're really methodical. But tell me again a little bit about how you do. You get the framework. How do you work? Well, to swear again, that was to cover my ass. Okay. You know, it just goes back to that training at the Washington Post. Hmm. You know, when you start a story, you pulled your clips, you read the clips, you did your got your B matter down, you made sure you had it all right. That used to say, all matters is if you're right. If you're wrong, it doesn't count. Because I know with with um, your second book, which was talking about you know the rise and fall to a certain extent of Galliano, John Galliano, and Lee McQueen, gods and kings or kings and gods, gods and kings, gods and kings. Gods and kings. I was worried I was going to get that wrong. You, a lot of people call it gods and monsters, which is kind of which is well, that was a great movie, but it's not the name of your book. Um, it it, it would have worked too. <laughs> But that, there again, I remember we talked and you said you had these amazing notes of, for all of your interviews with them that you had kept all of these ye- oh, from all of these years that you used without, within that book. It was so great to, to read Maybe it. Maybe after this we'll go down to the cob and see it. Oh, my God. I probably will I've be. already showed you the office with the library. I know. The cob is like its own thing. I, yeah, I've kept most of my notebooks, but all of mine is more fashion show criticism. It's not like one-on-one interviews like that. But, um, one-on-one interviews. Press kits, invitations. You keep all your invitations? Everything. Uh, I never And that's anything. because I started doing this before there was Google. So I kept all that because I needed it six months later, but then it would just sort of sit down the top. And every season, I would put a file together where I just stuck everything. I come in from the day and threw everything in the file. Susie so did the exact same thing. And we would do that for the top. Yeah. She had, I think the whole downstairs of the Herald Tribune was filled with her with her shelves of, of paper papers from each of the different seasons. And I, I learned that. And so what was the, the goal for you with that book? I mean, you, you said you, you took you a long time to get the, the vision and the way you wanted to go with, you know, the Dukes, but what, what, what made you, what was the spark of that? And then what made you, how did you find the direction you wanted to go in for that book? Well, Deluxe was a long gestating thing. Yeah. That, Gods and Kings. I feel like took, it came together faster. Took, took a minute and a half to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post. It was a brief period after I left Newsweek, because Newsweek was sold and sold again, yeah. and we closed the bureau. Yeah. And Robin Gavon went to the new version of Newsweek, which was the Daily Beast. Yep. And so I was writing for the Washington Post and from Paris. And so I, um, I was, uh, I did a piece on John Galliano's downfall at Dior. Mm-hmm. And in that piece, the second or third paragraph, I said that this isn't the first time that this happened. A year ago, we had the McQueen suicide. Mark Jacobs, who's in our building, who's had an intervention into rehab, as mm-hmm. in Dr. Versace. Mm-hmm. Um, the young designer from Belmont had just recently left his job 
because of nervous exhaustion. Yeah, I remember that. You know, there's a lot, and, and, and I put this all in one sentence, and I said, even Tom Ford talked about suffering depression after leaving Gucci, and, you know, nobody's, you know, the, the creative is being overworked and not getting the attention it needs given the stress of the position, and, and we have people who are, you know, either self-medicating or cracking. I remember you saying, I think in the book, wasn't it, that when John first started, he was doing uh, two. two show, two collections, and yeah. by the end at Dior, he was doing 30 plus... 36 or something, 32 or 36. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. You know, for me, the deluxe was about the business sacrificing, now not just fashion business, but all in the business, sacrificing integrity for the sake of profit right. in the age of globalization. And the second book was about the war between art and commerce. Hmm. Which is one of the oldest wars there is. It feels like a kind it of continuation. Yeah, it goes mm -hmm. back to the Greeks. Mm -hmm. The war between art and commerce, and um, and it, for this moment, at least at this period, commerce was winning, and, mm -hmm. and artists and know, artists were suffering. Yeah, yeah. and um, and so basically, the idea of sacrificing the creative, the creative, the creative person, for the sake of profit. And the new book, Fashionopolis, is about sacrificing humanity and the planet for the sake of art. Yeah, so you've been working on this one. This was another long gestating book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Actually, I was working on the proposal for this book when John had his flame out at Dior, and I just put, it was too soon to do that book anyway, but I put it to the side and said, no, yeah. I have to do this. Yeah. And I called my editor in London and I said, I think I got a book here. When I wrote that paragraph, I was like, oh. Yeah. And I called her and we talked, we hashed it out in about half an hour on the phone. And I sat down and went back to in four weeks as opposed to four or five years. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to the contract just like that and, mm -hmm. and hit that book. Now, that book I was supposed to do quickly, and it took four years. And it took four years in part because. Wait, which book are we talking about? Gods and King. Gods and King, four years, okay. It took four years in part because I talked to just about everyone that, any, that either one of those two worked with. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. And then in the middle of it, I lost both my parents. So the book came to a screeching halt twice for seven months. Wow. So um, that took a long time to do. And there's some people say it's too long, but then some people say it's not. No, so, I didn't feel that way at all. Um, it brought so much back to, for me, too, reading it from my experiences. It was really like a trip down, a sad memory lane, but a trip down memory lane. Well, I wanted it to not just be about the two of them, but of a particular era yeah, that it, was over yeah. with the passing of John from Dior. That, that moment was oh, yeah. over, and we moved into a whole different time. Yeah. And um, How is it for and you? I, so I made it, and it's somewhat memoirish, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. But how is it for you then to ask those hard questions? I mean, it you know, is it knowing that you're going to, people will be emotional or get angry or, I mean, do you, the word isn't like, do you care? But it's more like, how do you, those yeah. are sensitive moments. I mean, how do you approach that? I mean, I my whole thing is always to ask the hardest questions at the end of the interview to make sure that you get the rest, but. I wrote the death scene of McQueen a year before I finished the book. I mm. wrote it on Thanksgiving Day. And I was playing, I was learning um, box masks, and because uh, I was going to sing it in the Paris Choral Society, when I and I'd been listening to it all day, just sort of get in my head. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down to write that section, as it turned out, the section called Crucifixus came on. Oh wow! And if you read that two pages with that on, you'll hear the music in the words. Hmm. And when I was done. And it was only, it's what, like four minutes long, I think. Mm -hmm. 
but that's how long it took me to write those two pages. And when I was done, I was sobbing. It sounds like these books take a lot out of you. Why do you continue mm. to do them? Because they just need to be written. Mm. I studied politics, but I also studied history. And um, and I feel like I'm sort of doing contemporary history. And uh, these books aren't just about fashion. They're about you know, global society today. Mm -hmm. Business, commerce, people, craft, mm -hmm. um, culture, cities, mm -hmm. places. And I really want to... Um, capture those moments so if you read them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now you're taken back into the time a, a souvenir yeah and it's and it's a really and it and it is a that moment of snapshots so uh, so then you so you put I, I know it's a long book and I know it's a sad book when people say I'm about to read Gods and Kings I go you know beware it ends badly <laughs> and yeah. um, but you know tragedy tragedy is part of you know, the arts and part of our culture, it's been, you know, the classic form, one of the classic forms of, of theater and writing since, since forever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I need, I've written my tragedy now. Mm -hmm. I have to write a comedy at some point. I haven't done that yet. Well, I mean, you, you could make the, you could make the <laughs> argument. drama. Yeah, but you could make the argument also that uh, Fashionopolis is also something of a tragedy. It's, it's more drama, I think, than mm -hmm. tragedy. God's Kings is full on tragedy. No, I totally agree with you there. I, I, I try to make fashion office more about drama and hope. We call it the Book of Hope. And my agent would call or send notes about every three months saying, remember, it's the Book of Hope. <laughs> um, okay, she'd start reading pages and she'd be like, oh, it's kind of dark. Remember, it's the Book of Hope. Not too Marxist, please. <laughs> but uh, so, but you had put that on the side to, to do the, the John and Lee book. And so you, and then you came back. And it was, it. yeah, you're right. Cause it's just the perfect timing for it now. It, it was really, too soon to do it. The world what seems I, receptive to it now. What I wanted to write about had not matured to the point where it should be written about. Mm when I was first working on that. Idea. How did you know that it, the world wasn't ready for it? Because the proposal was not coming together. Hmm. Quite simply, it just wasn't, it just wasn't working. And I was like, hmm, why is this not working? It was because I was really forcing something to work that wasn't working. Hmm. And even when I wrote the proposal later, it still wasn't quite working because a lot of that book was come. you know, I was, as one of my friends at the fellowship said, it's a moving target mm. a lot was happening as I was reporting and writing the book so the proposal didn't quite work because it was happening while I was writing it like Evernew just came together while I was working on it and mm -hmm. I didn't know about it first and Bolt Threads was still coming to, you know there's a lot mm -hmm. of startups in the book yeah and um, and when I first was working on that proposal they weren't really doing what they were doing but the core was in my head since the beginning I knew I wanted to write about Natalie Channon and Alabama Channon yeah. since I knew that since 2000. 2011 was when I was first working on that proposal. Mm -hmm. But then you have all of these amazing... I love that other aspect of this book where you talk about that it's really women who are driving the... And that I just discovered while I was working on it. Like, there I was writing or meeting more fabulous women, and I came back and said to my assistant, and I met the most fabulous woman again today. And she's like, another one. Mm -hmm. I was like, another one. And then we started reading the book, and we're like, it's all women. Mm -hmm. Except in denim, because denim is a guy thing. Mm. Okay. It has since, it's been a guy thing since the day it was born. It was, in, you know, blue jeans were invented by two men mm -hmm. for minors, mm -hmm. for men. 
Yep. It's just a guy thing. But, I mean, it's great that the, <laughs> the most recent news from Stella in, just in January of this year where she's talking about a new a new denim that she's that she's doing a capsule collection with that, you know, it'll be the first time that she's yeah. doing something that's completely sustainable. But denim heads are guys. Yeah. The people who are genealogia, guys. Yeah. You know, mm. it's just a guy thing. I mean, we love Sarah Bellis doing natural indigo in Tennessee. Yeah. This is fantastic. But she's doing it for Vidalia Mills now in, I just read this week, Vidalia Mills in Louisiana, who I profile in the book, and that's all run by men. Mm -hmm. And she's doing it with Imogena Willie, which is run by men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, a guy, it's a guy so, world. Though. So, but do you feel optimistic after doing yes. this book? I am an optimist. Okay. I mean, it doesn't show after, after Gods and Kings, but I'm an optimist. So, yes, I think, basically, I feel like, you know, we can change it if we put our minds to it. Mm -hmm. If we set our minds to doing it, we can. Um, you're not going to be able to change the way... You're not going to make fashion sustainable by tweaking the old model. No. You have to invent a whole new model. And because the old model, from its core, from its basic, you know, from day one... Yeah, it's when fundamental. When Arkwright launched the water frame in Manchester and kicked off the Industrial Revolution, it has been unsustainable mm -hmm. in, in its impact on humanity and the planet. It was about employing really poor people, working them to the bone, put, dumping, you know, everything straight into the rivers, mm -hmm. shipping stuff all over the world. I mean, the cotton came from India or the South America, South of the United States to Liverpool, went to Manchester, went back to Liverpool, went back out around the world. So not sustainable on so many I mean, different levels. Honestly, yeah, It was the beginning of globalization. Yeah. We've had globalization in one, since, you know, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So none of it was sustainable in the long term. Mm -hmm. In the short term, it seemed cool and great. But, you know, Charles Dickens was writing an Oliver Twist about yeah. the corners of, of the sweatshops 150 years ago, and they look exactly like what I saw in Vietnam and Bangladesh today. Yeah. So, you know, as we say in French, the plus ça change. Yeah. So you can tweak that all you want, but if your model is based on volume and putting out as much volume as possible... You will never be sustainable, no matter how much organic cotton you're sourcing and how much natural indigo you're using. Yeah, yeah. If you're not doing zero waste, you're not thinking about zero waste, and you're not thinking circular, you'll never, ever be sustainable. So for the reason that I'm hopeful, and I, and I want to see, and I imagine this is the same for you, is because I feel like it's never going to be the brands that are going to, are going to switch it. It's, it's the Gen Z's and the millennials that are, are clamoring yeah. for accountability, sustainability, yes. and fair, you know. Or there's this, these other women that I met who are all my age, you know, in their early 50s, late 40s, who have been in that other industry their whole career, have the bona fides, mm -hmm. know what they're doing, could never break through the glass ceiling, got tired of trying to break through the glass ceiling, realized that that system was not the right system and not what we should be doing, mm -hmm. stepped out of the system mm -hmm. and created a whole new, a whole new system. Like, you know, took yeah. a step to the right, make a new system. Yeah. And so they're doing a lot of trailblazing, and they're also helping the millennials and the Gen Xs because they have the experience. And they'll say, that will work, or this will work, because yeah. I know. Yeah. And they can get the funding because they need people mm. and or they're doing the funding, or they're, I mean, I love seeing all these women entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, angels mm -hmm. underwriting these startups by women. Mm -hmm. That's really inspiring, too, that they've made a killing and now they're saying, let's help. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, Stella. Look at Stella. She's godmother in so many of these. And she's the godmother of this. And I she's, mean, she's you know hovering around fifty. So yeah, she's. Um, you know, what did you think about that? She says, like, let's let's do our own thing our way. But she's always done, you know, from the, from the jump, you know, she was been like that. What did you think about then her move from caring, which is ostensibly more sustainable and focused on? Because she's been poking at him with a stick. Mm. <laughs> and I think she's going to do the same in LVMA. She's going to poke at him with a stick. And Good for her. And exactly good for her. If she can turn that big ship to, a, to greener practices... God bless. Mm-hmm. I hope she can. So where where are you now? Are you are you completely you know curled up in a in a fetal position, recovering from this last book? I mean, how did what's going on now? Oh, it has not stopped. It's funny. Deluxe when Deluxe came out, um, it took off like a rocket. Mm-hmm. Mind you, Deluxe had twenty four turndowns before a publishing house said we take it. Interesting. Why do you think that was? They all said the same thing: fashion books don't sell. Huh. I'm saying this isn't a fashion book, and finally somebody saw that it wasn't a fashion book, and it made the New York Times bestseller list in two weeks. This book is a slower burn. Yeah, but it's nice to have a slow burn. You know, and it's, it's a longer. And like it keeps reaching out more and more, and more people are hearing about it, and then I'm getting more requests, and I'm getting, and it's selling slowly but steadily. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like it had a sharp, and then it's been like steady. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that'll keep going. How much time do you have to allot between, like, to, like, okay, I have to allot a, a year for supporting a book, or how does know. that... I'm going to keep doing this, at least at this pace, until late June, I think, and then I'll take off the summer and exhale. Okay. And, have and you, then it'll start up again, because it'll be and it'll come back, and then that'll, of course... And the paperback comes out, so we'll make more noise and bang the gong some more. And so, how... Are you already thinking about a next book? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I've already got, like, two or three in my head. Okay. But... I am thinking of taking this book more into turning it into something more than just a book and then I move on and doing a bit more um, How so? public service and activism. Um, it's motivated you in that way? Yeah. Oh. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to go into it from an academic point of view. I've been asked, I was asked to apply for a fellowship to do research in this area at a major university, mm-hmm. or if, um, to, as a fellow, or if I might go pursue a PhD on the subject, or if I'm going to just go do some lobbying mm-hmm. um, on both human rights and and environmental sustainable practices. Um, this is, this feel like something more, of a new calling for more, you? More op-ed kind of work mm-hmm. on, on it people um, and more speaking for yeah. sure more speaking speaking at universities yeah, it, it's always been part of my education and DNA when you know when we were kids in the 70s and the early 70s in elementary school all our student teachers were hippies yeah so, oh yeah for sure you know I remember Earth Day and planting trees and mm-hmm. I remember having class outside and yep. you know it's always been an interest which is one of the reasons I wrote about it let me ask you this, because I've had, you know, young, younger students and, and people who want to be a fashion journalist and work, you know, be a fashion critic come up to me and say, and I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm honestly reticent about suggesting that anybody do what we do at the, in this day and age, but I'm wondering well, <laughs> what your thoughts are. My thoughts are, I've never thought of myself as a fashion journalist. And hmm. when people say, when you come teach a class on fashion journalism, I say no. And I've been asked many times. Mm. And I say, no, because I don't believe in fashion journalism. 
And that's what Nina taught me, that what I'm doing isn't just straight-up journalism, but my beat is fashion. She taught me how to go out and, talk and report in the street, and I used those same skills to report a story on Marion Barry when he was arrested, and when I'm, you know, doing business stories and when I'm doing culture stories, you know, just like take your notebook and go talk to people and sit down and write your story, write your lead, write your nut graph, write, have your your quotes, have your have your story, the narrative strong, get it right, be factual. That's what I do. It's just about being a, an old school newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you can do that and you have the skills, you can cover any beat. All right, let me ask you the five generic fashion questions that I ask everyone. It'll be interesting to hear what you have to say. Um, the first generic fashion, and then and then we're done. Um, the first question is, what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own, that you cherish above all others? Well, I guess there's two, but for two different reasons. Mm. One is a, a shirt that I write about in the book, in Fashionopolis. It's a beautiful cotton shirt, organic cotton, grown in Alabama, woven nearby that Natalie Channon and Billy Reed made together as a project. And it's a V-neck t-shirt that I just wear all the time. It's so soft. It's a natural vanilla color. Though somebody spilled some bleach on it recently, so it's got some streaks. So I might now have to bleach it white, which bums me out. And it's just, you know, scrumptious. I sleep in it. I travel in it. I write in it. I work in it. Mm -hmm. I wear it under a blazer with my jeans. You know, this shirt is just, and it's thick enough that, you know, it's just, it's just great. Mm. But my most treasured piece, like if the house catches on fire, yeah. piece, <laughs> then I have to grab my Alaya coat. Ah. And it's a coat that Azadine gave to me in 1983 when I did this fashion show. Wow. And it's really beautiful. And every time you I You walked this fashion show? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and every time I wear it still, I get compliments on it. Oh, yeah. It's a great coat. It's a kimono, round sleeve, big wrapped around coat with help and, and it's just fantastic and that's what he paid me for walking in the show I know I got I, I, I have gotten paid in, in clothing and jewelry and the, I, sometimes I can turn out better than, than actually any actually getting paid I mean there's I have pieces like that like an Hermes coat that I will yeah take yeah. my kids will never get their hands on no but yeah. if the house is on fire we grabbed a lot yeah um, so then that brings me to the, the next question of, um, particularly after with your book, what piece of clothing, you know, do you, do you think it's really worth investing in? Like, is there a specific piece if, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't make a lot of money, is there one item of clothing that you should really, you know, put your pennies aside and buy that, you know, and spend the time on that? Well, given that half the world is wearing blue jeans at any given point in the day, mm-hmm. I would say get yourself proper pair of organic cotton, natural indigo dyed salvage jeans. Um, okay, who is your favorite designer, living or dead? Ah, that's an interesting one. I guess Balenciaga. Why? Well, because those clothes are part sculptures. Mm-hmm. And they just made me look so, so, so Agreed. And the colors. The colors. While he was known for black, he was such an extraordinary but for me, my favorite designer that I would wear if I could have afforded it and been at the time would have been someone. What trend will you never follow? Ruching. <laughs> okay. You will never see me in ruching. Oh, God. Well, for me, for it's always the thing where like this, you, you ruch them up or whatever, and then it's got the long cords dangling down that you They're get ruching. in your soup or whatever. 
Just do not ruch. Yeah. No ruching. No ruching. Okay. And and harem pants for women. No, that's never a good day for harem pants. With the elastic around the ankle. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the crotch down by your knees now. <laughs> Just so. Um, okay, last question. Um, what do you love most about fashion? The craftsmanship. Mm. The working with your hands, making beautiful things. Which is so basic in our human nature. Janet, you've lived an extraordinary life. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, la, la. So good. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.